Okay, thanks very much, Meg, and uh, welcome everyone to this, the first panel of the Constitution Unit's Annual Conference 2023. As Meg has just said, the theme for the conference as a whole is the future of the Constitution, and in this opening session, we're looking particularly at the future of Parliament. Uh, my name is Tom Fleming, I'm a lecturer at the Constitution Unit, and I'll be chairing this opening session. The last few years have seen frequent controversy about Parliament's role and about the government's openness to parliamentary accountability. Concerns are focused on Parliament's ability to scrutinise primary and delegated legislation and international treaties, as well as on the role of the House of Lords. So what are the proper scrutiny roles of MPs and peers? Do they have the opportunities and resources necessary to carry these out? And if not, what reforms might be needed and how could these be delivered? We have an excellent panel to discuss all of these important questions. Thangam Debonair is the Labour MP for Bristol West and the shadow leader of the House of Commons. Professor Philip Norton, Lord Norton of Louth, brings a unique perspective on Parliament as both a Conservative peer and Professor of Government at the University of Hull. Dr Bridget Fowler is a senior researcher at the Hansard Society, where she contributes to their leading research on the legislative process and parliamentary scrutiny. And finally, Alexander Horne is a barrister and a visiting professor at Durham University. He previously spent 18 years as a legal advisor in Parliament and was the first legal advisor to the House of Lords International Agreements Committee. The way we'll proceed today is that each of the speakers will make some opening remarks of around five minutes, after which we will have some discussion amongst the panellists. We will then open up the floor to your questions. The questions will be gathered by my colleague, Lisa James, who you can hopefully see on your screens. If you've got a question that you would like to be put to the panel, please just write it in the Q&A function on Zoom rather than the chat. Lisa will then select a broad range of questions and read them out a few at a time. And if you would like your question to be asked anonymously, please just indicate that when you submit the question. So finally, let me just note that this whole session, including the Q&A, is being recorded, which you may want to bear in mind when deciding if, uh, whether to ask your question anonymously. The event will be posted online on the Constitution Unit website, our YouTube channel and our podcast after the event. But with that, let me hand over to our first speaker, Thangam Debonair. Thangam, over to you. Thank you, Tom, for that introduction and to Meg for introducing the, the whole event. And of course, to the Constitution Unit for hosting us today, it is great to be in the company of such a distinguished panel. Uh, of course, I would expect nothing less than the Constitution Unit. So um, first of all, whether it's the Constitution Unit's work on trust in politics, the Institute for Government's work on, for example, pre-legislative scrutiny or the Hansard Society's recent work on statutory instruments, to name just a few, research and work by organisations such as those represented just on the screen, but also other many others beyond, is incredibly useful for MPs, but especially for those of us who have a responsibility in relation to how Parliament works. So in my shadow leader of the House role, I've read a lot of all your proposals and I share your cause to make Parliament work better for the people we represent. That's how we make sure that it's in the best shape it can be to serve our constitution and our country. Now, restoring trust in Parliament, as, as Tom and, and Meg have hinted at, is really crucial here because, for example, just last week, when leading the opposition in the Privileges Committee debate on Boris Johnson, I referenced the Constitution Unit survey on public attitudes on how our democracy works. And your survey found that 52% of people either distrusted or strongly distrusted Parliament. Now, considering the public gets to choose us, in the Commons at least, that is a statistic that worries me greatly, and I'll come to why in a moment. But first, while it's shocking, it's not surprising. 
whether it's Boris Johnson lying to Parliament or the Patterson scandal a couple of years back or former Tory ministers plotting to line their pockets by £10,000 a day for fake South Korean company. And no, I did not have that one on my 2023 Tory bingo card. There is clearly a lot of work needed to put this right and to restore trust in Parliament. Your survey seemed to show that people are striving for a government which will strengthen our democracy and that while the cost of living and the NHS are people's top priorities, they also care about the health of democracy as much as crime or immigration and their right to care. If we politicians are to tackle soaring mortgage rates, rising crime, NHS waiting lists or any of the many other issues that fill up my inbox, the public must be able to trust Parliament. Now, that's because it's how democracy works. If people don't trust Parliament, they lose hope that it can change their lives. If they lose hope, they don't bother engaging with it. If they don't engage, we as MPs fall out of touch. And if we're out of touch, we can't deliver. If we can't deliver, democracy has failed. So how do we restore trust in politics? I'll start with the basics. A Labour government would give MPs the tools we need to scrutinise government. We'd aim to give them timely and quality answers to written parliamentary questions and letters to ministers. We'd send those same ministers to the dispatch box or select committees promptly and properly prepared to answer questions. We will publish timely and quality impact assessments for legislation. Just as an example, just this week, the one for the illegal migration bill, which I've been calling for for months at business questions on a Thursday. That is a quick plug if you don't already tune in. Um, I've been calling for that impact assessment and in the closing stages of the bill's passage through Parliament, it's finally arrived. But even then, it fails to say how much it will cost, how much the bill will cost or what the impact of most of the policies will be. So it's not much of an impact ass assessment. So this is basic, should be basic, but it obviously needs sorting out. Next, a Labour government will uphold standards. Where MPs fall short and on rules, we will not attempt to overhaul the standard system to get them off. Neither will we undermine the Parliamentary Commissioner for standards. We'd empower them to carry out their important independent work. Again, this also ought to be basic. But my opposite number, but two, two previous ones, tried to re rewrite the entire system just to get one of his colleagues off. Now, Keir Starmer has committed to creating a culture of respect from the top, embodying the Nolan principles in everything that we do. I'm sure everyone does remember the led by donkeys footage of senior MPs plotting to rake in thousands of pounds a day by getting a second, a third, or in one case, a fourth job. Now, let me assure you, in my view, being an MP is a full-time job. I think the public know that. They don't want to see their representatives using our positions as a vehicle to line their own pockets. Labour will put an end to this. We will ban second jobs for MPs with extremely limited exceptions. Now, I know this session is focused on Parliament. So what I've focused on so far is about my role um, in, as Leader of the House and what we'll do in Parliament. But I just as a sidebar, I just want to mention I, I'm looking forward to working with colleagues to extend the franchise to 16 and 17 year olds, spreading power, wealth and opportunity around the UK through our devolution plans, abolishing the House of Lords in the first term and replacing it with a smaller democratically elected second chamber. I think we need an institution more representative of the people it serves, because if it does that, it's better able to serve the people. We will set out more details for restoring trust in our manifesto. We recognise in Labour that the public's trust in Parliament is low. And quite frankly, you can't blame the public for that. But from all the work that you've all been doing, from all the polling, from everything that from the people I speak to on the doorstep that they tell me, um, I have hope because there is the will to change politics. There is the means to change Parliament. 
And that's what Keir Starmer has set out we will do, is, and he's Prime Minister, because he knows that that's how we address the challenges facing working people. It's how we fix democracy. It's how we make Parliament a thriving arm of the UK's constitution. And I look forward to the discussion. Thanks, Tom. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, what a fantastic way to get us started. Uh, we'll turn straight over, if we may, to Philip Norton for his remarks. Right. Thank you very much. Well, I've been asked to address the role of the House of Lords and the role is determined by its relationship to the House of Commons. The Lords accepts the primacy of the House of Commons and seeks to act as a complementary chamber, fulfilling tasks that the Commons may not have the time or the political will to carry out. Now, my starting point is that good law is a public good and the Lords contributes to that by taking over where the Commons lets go. So the Commons determines the ends, if you like, the principle of a measure, essentially the first part of good law, ensuring that something is necessary uh, and achievable. I say that's the first part. The second is ensuring that it's well-drafted, designed to achieve its purpose. The third is ensuring it's implemented effectively. Now, the Lords focuses on the second. It is primarily a chamber of detailed legislative scrutiny, and it's well placed to engage more in the third in the form of post-legislative scrutiny. So in terms of what the Lords does, it adds value to the political process. So detailed legislative scrutiny is the principle, but not the only task fulfilled by the House. And successive governments, as well as the recent report of the Brown Commission, essentially accepted that it does a good job, that its functions are essentially those fulfilled by the present House. So there are no real plans when you look at the proposals to change its functions. Instead, reformers focus on input legitimacy. So how members are chosen rather than output legitimacy, that is what it does. Yet form should follow function. Those writing to the Times with their pet schemes for change in the composition of the House miss the point completely. Similarly, governments have sought to introduce Big Bang reform. They've shown a basic disconnect between selection and function. The schemes are premised on the Lords continuing to fulfil its existing tasks, but with a different membership, as if changing the membership will not impact on its capacity to fulfil those functions. The House is able to engage in effective scrutiny by virtue of having a membership characterised by experience and expertise. So the strengths of the House are worth maintaining. The House complements, it doesn't conflict nor duplicate the Commons. But there are problems with which the way in which members are appointed. I believe the House also could build on what it does in order to fulfil even more effectively the functions that it does fulfil. Now, in terms of membership, the House is too large in size. The House has agreed a motion without a division, accepting that it is too large and that it should be smaller. I mean, most of us like, would like it to be smaller than the House of Commons. Uh, and that the present method of nominating new peers clearly has attracted public opprobrium, both in terms of quantity and quality. In recent years, too many peers have been nominated and some of those nominated have clearly attracted negative publicity. And it's clearly affected public trust in the institution and may indeed constitute an existentialist threat. So what then can 
be done. Now, at the start of this session, I introduced uh, a bill, the House of Lords Peerage Nominations Bill. It's designed to put HOLAC, the House of Lords Appointments Commission on a statutory basis, protecting its independence and ensuring that the Prime Minister doesn't submit a nomination until HOLAC has reported. It requires the Prime Minister to have regard to certain principles, mainly that the House of Lords is no bigger than the Commons, that at least 20% of the members should be free of any party affiliation as crossbenchers, that no one party should have an overall uh, majority. It also ensures that um, the Commission will apply certain criteria in assessing nominations, primarily those of conspicuous merit, and ensuring that those nominated have a capacity and willingness to contribute to the work of the House. It also enables the Commission to generate additional criteria, having regard to the diversity of the population of the United Kingdom. It also introduces transparency by requiring party leaders making nominations to inform HOLAC of the criteria and the process selected for making nominations. So that's the content. Now, when the bill was debated on second reading, there was overwhelming support for it from members, and that support came from all parts of the House. So the key point I want to put over, the House of Lords is not an obstacle to reform. We've achieved reform before, that is some members of the House pressing through private members' legislation. So we're largely responsible, we are responsible, the House of Lords Reform Act 2014. There's more we can and would like to do. I would like the House to play to its strengths in expanding post-legislative scrutiny and doing more with the Commons in terms of pre-legislative scrutiny. So it's a case of enabling the House to do even better what it already does. So what we're seeking to do is build on what we have rather than destroying the present merits of the system. But my end point is the House of Lords is not an obstacle to reform, it's the government. We're in favour of change. We think it can be changed. Government provides the time. We'll ensure that measures are delivered, as we did in 2014, to reform the House, enabling it to do that, uh, which matters, which ensures, contributes to good law and engages with the public. Because one of the most important things a, a poll actually commissioned by the Constitutional Unit found some years ago is that in, uh, the most important aspect of the Lords in terms of the public is trust in the appointments process. We need to get that right. We're in favour of change designed to achieve that. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Philip. Uh, we'll go straight over to our third speaker, which is Bridget Fowler. Thanks very much, Tom, uh, and to the Constitution Unit for the opportunity to uh, take part today on behalf of the Hansard Society. Um, I'm going to be speaking primarily about the Hansard Society's proposals for reform of delegated legislation. Um, but before uh, turning to that, I just wanted to take a few seconds out of my time just to flag one other thing to make absolutely sure that it does get a mention. Um, and that is uh, restoration and renewal of the Palace of Westminster, so-called R&R. Um, I feel that all too often it kind of gets tacked on to the end of panels such as this as a bit of an afterthought, whereas it, it really does need to be central, I think, um, if we're looking forward. Um, if we're thinking about where we want Parliament to be by the end of its next term, the question is literal, not just metaphorical. Do we want Parliament still to be in the Palace? Or do we want it to be somewhere else? And if it's going to be somewhere else, is it going to be there as part of a scheduled decant from the palace? 
or is it going to be there because the building has finally failed in some way that renders it unusable? So I will leave that there, but perhaps we, we, we might want to come back to that. Um, in terms of uh, our work on delegated legislation, it's nine years now since the Hansard Society uh, declared that the current delegated legislation system is not fit for purpose in its major book on the subject. At that time, this was a rather lonely call. Um, very few people were interested, very few people took much notice. I think we can say confidently that that situation has changed and that both awareness of delegated legislation and concern about the way in which it is currently used have risen significantly in recent years as a result in particular of COVID, but also of Brexit. And we now think that um, the time is ripe for wholesale reform of the system. And we hope very much that this is something that we will see in the next parliament. It is much clearer than it's ever been that the current system is not working well. The it, delegated legislation is now being used in such a way that it upsets the constitutional balance between the executive and the legislature and tilts things too far in the direction of the executive. There are also political and practical problems it effectively stops MPs from being able to do their jobs effectively and represent their constituents in a meaningful way. It damages the reputation of Parliament. It leads to too much law making it onto the statute book that subsequently needs correction. And as a result of all these factors, it wastes parliamentarians and ministers' time um, and other parliamentary and civil service resources. We outlined um, preliminary recommendations, uh, preliminary proposals in February, um, and I encourage everybody to take a look at uh, those on our website. We are now working on final proposals, um, which will be with you after the summer recess. We think that both elements, both phases of the delegated legislation system need reform, and we will be putting forward proposals to both of them. That is, first of all, the delegation of powers in bills. Um, we propose that there should be a, a, a concordat um, which between Parliament and the government, which would be a co-owned document, which would simply set out shared understandings of what the appropriate or of appropriate uses of delegated legislation. And min ministers would be obliged when they introduce a bill to Parliament to say whether they, um, whether the the bills that the powers in the bill conform with those shared understandings, and to explain if not, why not. So this would be a, a sort of surfacing tool, um, so that Parliament could better see when um, unusual, unprecedented powers were being sought. Secondly, we would propose um, to reform parliamentary scrutiny of the statutory instruments that ministers make using their delegated powers. We propose a, a wholesale reform of the system. Um, we propose that we would break the link between the scrutiny procedures that are currently prescribed in parent acts and the actual statutory instruments themselves, um, so that 
parliamentarians would be able to decide how they want to scrutinise statutory instruments. We propose that this should be done through a, a, a sifting committee, which, which would be joint between the two houses. And then in terms of the scrutiny of the instruments that parliamentarians do want to debate and, and scrutinise further, we propose a wholesale reform of the system in the Commons, where the, the problems are greatest. We would uh, do away with the current system of delegated legislation committees, which are temporary committees um, and perform rather perfunctory, often rather perfunctory scrutiny. And we would replace them with permanent regulatory scrutiny committees, which would be able to debate SIs critically on amendable motions. And they would be better supported in terms of staffing. Um, and we, we think that this um, system would, would both offer MPs a greater opportunity to engage meaningfully with SIs and therefore incentivize them to do so. The overall aim of the, of the proposals is to make the new system more efficient and more effective. It would be a, a big reform, but we think that some of it could be implemented in phases. You could do pilots of, of some elements of it, and we will be um, putting forward proposals or sort of an implementation plan as to how that could be done uh, when we publish our final proposals. Wonderful. Thanks, Bridget. So we'll just come now to our, our last, but by no means least, speaker, uh, Alexander Hall. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you to uh, Meg and the Constitution Unit for having me here today. Um, I'm here to speak on parliamentary scrutiny of international agreements, um, taking uh, some account of my uh, previous work in the House of Lords. Um, I noted uh, yesterday that it's nearly 100 years since the uh, Ponsonby Rule, um, which sort of first started the idea of parliamentary scrutiny of treaties, uh, came about. It's uh, 1924, so a year, uh, year to go. Um, and anyone looking at the system now would see something um, quite familiar from uh, 99 years ago. Although the law uh, was partially codified in 2010 and the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act, not that much has changed. Um, both under the Ponsonby Rule and, and the new statute, um, treaties are laid before Parliament for 21 sitting days. Uh, we now get an explanatory note, and it's then really for Parliament to make its own arrangements for scrutiny. Now, Brexit's brought a new interest in the scrutiny of international agreements. Um, this really started with the rollover EU trade agreements. That provided a, a considerable impetus for Parliament to decide what to do. Um, but most of this work is currently done in the House of Lords by the International Agreements Committee. It examines every treaty laid before Parliament under CRAG. It produces reports with recommendations. And the most important treaties are debated. But this is really scrutiny without accountability. The Lords has no real power other than to highlight the defects with new treaties. The only weak powers contained in CRAG are granted to the House of Commons, and that's to delay the ratification of new agreements. Yet the Commons recently shuttered the only committee with a focus on international agreements, the International Trade Committee. And so we really have to ask ourselves what should happen in the Commons now? The treaty scrutiny in the Commons, the abolition of the International Trade Committee, was a retrograde step. Recently, the Lord's International Agreements Committee led on negotiating what was eventually referred to as an exchange of letters, but really was an attempted concordat with the government to consolidate a number of additional scrutiny commitments, which would benefit committees in both the Commons and Lords. 
The commitments only related to free trade agreements, but these are often the most significant treaties considered in Parliament. The government promised to provide a, a great measure of new uh, sort of commitments, including publishing negotiating objectives, facilitating debates, and allowing Parliament a reasonable amount of time to scrutinise new trade agreements and produce their reports, which went well beyond the 21 sitting days. The loss of the International Trade Committee means the Commons will need to find a new platform for treaty scrutiny going forwards. Uh, but this is really quite important, and it will become increasingly important as events over the last year have demonstrated, because there are quite a number of significant lacuna in crack. With my remaining time, I'll, I'll just focus on two of these, amendments to treaties and memoranda of understanding. On the first of these, the conclusion and implementation of the recent Windsor framework highlights the effectiveness of the current arrangements. Whatever one's views on Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol, the Windsor framework was a significant agreement between the UK and European Union. But because it was not considered to be a new treaty, it did not require ratification and was so not subject to the provisions of the Constitutional Reform and Governments Act. This meant that Parliament did not even receive the usual 21 sitting day period to scrutinise the New Deal. And this issue is not unique to the UK's agreements with the EU. Many international agreements, including free trade agreements, allow for amendments to be made by mutual consent of parties under a joint committee process. This is a normal mechanism in modern trade agreements. Unless these changes require the passage of domestic legislation, there are no guarantees they'll even be notified to Parliament in a timely fashion. The provision that currently governs amendments is now on incomprehensible and open to a number of interpretations, and any serious attempt to reform the scrutiny process will need to address this issue. Memoranda of understanding is a term used to refer to non-binding international agreements between states, and the recent UK-Rwanda asylum partnership arrangement highlights the problem with the government's current use of MOUs and the inadequacy of Parliament's scrutiny mechanism for them. The use of an MOU allows the government to sidestep crag as there's no obligation to even notify Parliament of the new arrangement, since it's not a treaty. Indeed, the government has indicated it does not believe it's even under an obligation to routinely disclose MOUs to Parliament. The International Agreements Committee has proposed that international instruments that engage individual rights or have significant economic, environmental, or political implications should be published and submitted to a scrutiny by Parliament before they come into force, whatever therefore. But at present, the government's strongly resisting this proposal. Finally, I'll just touch briefly on a way forward. How should these issues be dealt with? PACAC is currently concluding an inquiry into this, the Public Administration Committee. Um, but my, in my view, it should consider two things. First off, a new sifting committee in the House of Commons. This could identify international agreements and MOUs, which are politically or legally important, and assist the relevant departmental select committees with scrutinising them. But in the longer term, there's clearly a need to reform CRAG. The system needs to change so that the consent of the House of Commons is required for the most important treaties and treaty amendments. I think it's only then that we'll see both scrutiny and accountability. Thank you. Okay, wonderful, thank you. What a great set of opening remarks from everyone. Lots of really rich detail on such some really important themes. We'll turn over to audience questions in about 15 minutes or so. I can see that lots uh, have already been coming in, but if you have further questions, now is your chance to please remember to pop them in the Q&A function uh, and then Lisa can hopefully read those out on your behalf shortly. 
while there's a few more of those are coming in, I'll just put a few questions myself to the panel. Um, and I'd like to begin with something that seemed to emerge as a sort of common theme across everyone's contributions, um, which is this question of how far uh, reform requires the government to do things or requires parliament or a chamber of parliament to use tools it already has or to push for certain reforms. Uh, so I wonder if I could just invite each of the panellists, perhaps in the same order, to sort of reflect on how far they're, they're, it's the government that needs to change things or, or there are things parliament can do. And if it's the former, does that mean that only certain changes are likely to happen? And particularly that changes that enhance scrutiny are less likely to happen? Perhaps I could invite uh, Thangam to, to reflect on that first. Um, well, the government does hold the cards when it comes to the parliamentary timetable. And I think everyone on the screen knows it. I think everyone beyond the screen who's got an interest in constitutional affairs will know that. And then of course, there are some people who would like that to change. Um, but in order for something to change the under the existing system, the government would have to decide that it needed to change. Um, I happen to think that a lot of what's being proposed here just makes better government. Um, so I think a responsible government would want to change at least some of these things. Um, it, it's, when you have better scrutiny, you end up with better laws, better regulations, better international agreements. Uh, you make use of the expertise that's in both chambers, uh, whether it's the revising and um, uh, amending chamber or it's the primary chamber. We, we need MPs to be able to use detailed analysis. And I think the, the proposals that some have mentioned about pre and post legislative scrutiny, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think we've all seen good examples recently where pre legislative scrutiny has really helped get a bill to work or get a bill into Parliament. I can also think of one at least where it's still stuck in the legislative process. That's the online safety bill, despite extensive legislative scrutiny. Um, but yes, the government has to decide that it wants to do that. And that's why I'm particularly interested in looking, I've got a very long, long list at the moment of all of the proposals that key organisations, researchers, academics, commentators, whether it's you know Ian Dunn's book or Bridget's work, the Hansard Society's work on SIs, on delegated ledge, got a long, long list of things we could do. Um, there are some things which don't require the government to change anything formally, they just require the government to do things properly. And so for instance, that my complaint, and it's the complaint of many colleagues about governments not answering letters on time or at all, governments not answering WPQ written parliamentary questions on time or at all. That is a fixable problem that doesn't need legislation. It just needs the government to decide to do it. In, in fairness to my opposite member, Penny Mordaunt, she repeatedly commits to going away and reminding her colleagues, but certainly colleagues um, on all sides of the House are saying that that is still a problem, with, especially with certain departments, and it impedes our ability to do a good job. So there's things the government could just decide to do better. And there's things that they would then need to legislate for, and they'd have to make parliamentary time for that. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Philip? Uh, yes, I'd largely agree with that. I mean, obviously, the government itself can come forward with proposals and historically variously has done. Um, but the main task is providing time to achieve change. And that can come from within the House itself and historically has done. So you look at some of the major changes, the departmental select committees that came from a report of the Procedure Commission, the Commons, pressure from the House on government to facilitate it. So Norman St. John Stevens, leader of the House, facilitated that but the pressure came from the house now when i chaired the house of lords constitution committee we produced a report on parliament and the legislative process which 
I'm quite proud because I wrote it, but um, that came, looked at the legislative process holistically and what we can do in terms of pre-legislative scrutiny, post-legislative scrutiny, as well as the actual legislative process once a bill's introduced. Now, some of that it's possible to achieve through the House itself, certainly in the Lords. So we've made advances in post-legislative scrutiny, normally each session having a committee to engage in post-legislative scrutiny. I'd like to see that expanded. So there's a, some things we can do under our own uh, steam, particularly in the Lords, but we do normally rely on the government to at least facilitate it. It is a question of time. That was my point about the House of Lords Project nomination bills. Back in 2014, the House of Lords reform bill um, was a private member's bill, but we persuaded the government to facilitate it to provide time. Now, the advantage from the government's point of view is it achieves reform without impacting on the government's wider program. Um, so it goes through as a private member's bill, it becomes an act. If the government then wants to take credit for it, which it did, um, we don't have a problem uh, with that. But it's the government recognising it's in it. The key point I want to make, it's the government recognising it's actually in its own interest to facilitate Parliament fulfilling the sort of tasks that we've mentioned. Because I think the key point is that a good government needs an effective Parliament. So government needs to be challenged, it needs to be scrutinised effectively, it needs to be held to account to ensure it is performing well. So a confident government should not be frightened of reform, it should welcome it. So I think that's the point we want to come across. It's not an adversarial relationship, it's facilitating Parliament doing that, which will eventually underpin government. And coming back to the initial discussion on trust, I think that will be a major contributor to that. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Um, yes, I agree with um, the previous speakers with and with Thangham in terms of our proposals. Ultimately, uh, we would need the government to get on board and we, we, we've been trying to um, frame them in such a way that it makes clear what the advantages would be to government of either political stripe or of any political stripe. Um, not so there would be advantages to government, not just to to Parliament, but um, to fully implement our proposals, we would need a new statutory instruments act and we would need new standing orders. Um, so in certainly in the Commons. Um, so ultimately, we would need uh, to government to uh, to implement to implement them. Two caveats to that. Um, I think in terms of what parliamentarians and particularly backbenchers in the Commons um, could do. I mean, one one is that I, I think I'm I'm concerned, and I think other people are also concerned and frustrated sometimes about the apparent what what can sometimes look like a, a sort of lack of um, engagement with the formal procedural tools that that parliamentarians that backbenchers have available to them. They I I wrote for example a blog about the the scrutiny of the Windsor framework where MPs were entirely right to complain that it wasn't adequate but that case engaged some general issues it wasn't just a one-off such as treaty amendment as Alex has already discussed um and I do hope that in the that, that there in the next parliament there are some MPs who want to engage with these kind of um procedural issues um the second point is about standards um, and I don't want to sound facetious or flippant, but MPs could simply not do some of the things that violate the rules and bring the House into disrepute. They could just not do them. And um, that rather than, you know, we all spend a lot of time thinking about institutional change um, and, and changing the incentives and, and um, formal structures. But 
you know individual agency is is always available as it were Brilliant. Uh, Alexander, do you have anything to add on this? Yes, just very, very briefly. I mean, I, I, I agree uh, with our, our previous panellists. I think treaties provides an instructive example. Um, if you look at sort of organic developments, I think you've seen in the House of Lords um, what you can do as far as Parliament can with, mm -hmm. with the cooperation of the government, but without the government really sort of doing a great deal to um, facilitate things more than it has to. Um, I think the sort of scenario that I described in the Commons would eventually require legislative change. The issue that you really have with treaties, unlike the other types of legislation that were being discussed, is that at the moment the statutory framework puts the treaty into Parliament fully developed and signed. So there's no opportunity to amend it. So what Parliament really needs is an in earlier in the process and then possibly a final decision making um, uh, ability at the end. Um, we could see this in the European Parliament when we were members of the EU, where the European treaties provided the European Parliament with a right to information and then a right of a final veto um, on certain types of treaties. And that would certainly be uh, the sort of scheme that I think would, would benefit the UK Parliament. Brilliant, thank you. So all of these uh, answers so far have highlighted, I suppose, that there are some sort of quick wins that governments could do relatively easily or part of different chambers of parliament could do very easily, but it also seems like some of these changes take up time. And I wonder at a time when the country has lots of uh, other issues um, that it that might want their politicians to address, is there a risk with some of these changes that politicians need to sort of sell the material benefits of this stuff to avoid just looking like they're talking about themselves? I wonder, perhaps we could take people in the, the reverse order this time. Um, Alex, do you want to come back in on how, particularly with things like treaties and delegated legislation that might seem more obscure on the face of it yeah well I, I i think obviously this does have to be sold with people you know interested in cost of living crises and all of these other things but i mean a subject like treaties you, you know you did see real interest in the free trade agreements with say australia the effects on the farming community and so on and so forth and actually it's been found that giving legislatures a voice um means that it can help governments negotiate this you know, governments can go into these things saying, well, I can't get this past uh, the legislature. So don't, you know, don't, don't, don't try and, you know, foist this on us. Um, and, and certainly that's the sort of thing that we had been hearing. I think the public do become uh, uh, sort of aware of, of the fact that these things are just turning up. They find on the front page, suddenly they might get different food standards or, you know, this, this view that the NHS might be under threat when we were talking about having a treaty with the US. So I think they do have legitimate concerns there. Um, and it's something where these types of agreements can have a real effect on, say, the price of food in the shops, which, you know, coming back to what, where we started from, that, you know, is of real relevance. So, so I think that, that that's really the way I would look at addressing treaties. But on, on the broader front, um, uh, yes, I mean, I appreciate when you begin to talk about things like House of Lords reform, delegated legislation, it can look like a bit of navel gazing. But, but I would also agree with the other panellists, nonetheless, that these things are very important. Brilliant. Uh, Bridget, do you have um, something to add? I think just quickly, um, the situation with uh, statutory instruments is is similar to the situation with treaties in some respects in 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 that um they do have a very material impact on people's everyday lives um and we i think that came home to people very forcefully during covid when england was locked down uh 
using statutory instruments that Parliament only got to uh, scrutinise retrospectively. Um, but there are many, many other examples of uh, SIs that govern vast areas of people's lives um, and Parliament, or that certainly the Commons, can't um, scrutinise them effectively because of the way the current system is set up. And it, and I think it, I think we would want to say to MPs that if you take the time with the support of the government to reform the system, you would then be able to say to your constituents, "Oh, I might be able to do something about that," instead of having to say, "Oh, it's a negative instrument. I can't do anything," or "You know, it's already been made. It's already law. I can't do anything." Because I assume that that makes them feel rather ineffectual, and we want to give them more and more powers so that they can be more effective in representing their constituents. Philip, uh, yes, I may agree that changes necessary for the reason that Bridget touched upon. This is not some dry procedural point. It's putting in place something that will impact the lives of citizens. It actually matters. So it, it's essential we do that. The problem from the point of view of the perception of the public is whatever changes we make and however well they work, people aren't necessarily going to notice what either house does because people do not focus on what members do collectively in terms of scrutinizing government going through the process we mentioned. I'm afraid what people focus on is the actions of individual members. So that's why standards are so important in, the, in respect to public trust, because that's what people focus on. What we're discussing doesn't get much attention, but it's absolutely fundamental to improving the quality of parliament, the way it scrutinises government, and the consequences that it has for issues that are really going to impact on people, even though they may not necessarily be aware of it. Um, Thangham, do you have thoughts on this? Yes, um, so sort of zooming out even further from where Lord Norton uh, left us there, I think the, the standards in particular in relation to lying, uh, last Monday was a really important moment, I think, in our, in our democracy, because it was, in some ways, MPs of all colours recommitting to the importance of truth, accountability, standards and parliamentary democracy. We had some amazing speeches from parliamentarians, again, of all colours, you know, for, for, from um, Harriet Harman to Theresa May, on why it matters if public, if the public thinks we lie, and why it was restoring democracy to show the public actually there is a system. Because for the last few years, the public has been ever increasingly just thinking, when you guys do something wrong, nothing happens. And it's been tough, especially on the Privileges Committee themselves, but I think for the rest of saying the Privileges Committee is doing their work, they are doing their job, I have faith in the process. And to know that they were going to just get on with it, get their heads down. But I think that matters because it does also relate back to whether it's international treaties or statutory instruments. The public isn't going to embed itself in every word of either of those. But it needs to know that we A, are doing that and B, that we're not making stuff up, that we're working from actual evidence. And that brings me to another part of Bridget, the, the Hansard Society's work on statutory instruments, which is about the provision of explanatory notes. And, you know, the, the potential possibly for getting more evidence. I remember I'm, I'm battle hardened. I was a whip in the Brexit years, so I cannot tell you the number of uh, delegated led committees I sat through, sometimes three a day, frequently undoing a mistake that had happened the previous week. Um, but one of the things we noticed was uh, delegated led fatigue by stakeholders, but also that members, even the ones who are most committed to getting this right, 
also we're starting to go well I can't really tell what the difference is between what we did last week and what we did the week before and I memorably remember sitting in one which was actually about banning fracking in uh, allowing sorry fracking in national parks and the way it was written was so dry that three MPs who actually had a national park in their constituency didn't realise until I got one of my colleagues to stand up and say, you ought to listen because this is your constituency. The government's about to frack in and they certainly, you know, their heads popped up at that point. So I think giving us better tools to do our job, but also, as, as Bridget said, individual agency is always available. And as leaders, which we are as parliamentarians, I think we also have to take responsibility for trying to get on top of the detail when we're on a committee. And that is helped if we have decent timetabling to make sure that you know we're not doing three or four a day every single day, but also we've got the tools to use. Fantastic. Before we turn over to some of the audience questions, uh, I thought I should just pick up on uh, Bridget's plea that um, we might mention restoration and renewal of the powers okay. at Westminster, because I could see vigorous nodding on the screen when she mentioned that. So um, do those who are nodding want to come in with a quick reflection on that? Okay. Well, I was going to mention because I'm a member of the client board as a House of Commons commissioner. So this is this is a huge chunk of my brain, my soul, my life, my parliamentary day. Um, it's something that we cannot kick down the road for yet another generation of parliamentarians, but more importantly, the public. The public, if this is the public's parliament. There's also a lot of myths that this building I'm in right now, Portcullis House, that is actually a very good, well-functioning modern building. Unfortunately, no, that's not true either. Um, but the parliamentary estate, I think there's something quite special about the fact it is both a place of history and a place of work and that the public can come and see us do our work. We owe it to them to sort this out. And it needs doing. I mean, I have to say my experience with the client board is a, a sense of great urgency. And we've got some fantastic people helping us. And so I can totally support Bridget's view. We don't have the tools to do the job in terms of space, equipment and so on. But also we have a historic building, which I want to continue to be part of a living history, not a museum, if possible. I don't think there's any plans for it to be a museum, by the way. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I very much agree with that, and I'd reinforce what Bridget was saying, because it's not just the case of thinking it in terms of what we do with the building. It's the fact that the current decaying infrastructure does impact on the capacity of members to do their job. So there's actually consequences for the way that Parliament operates, and that's becoming more apparent day by day. The other thing we've got to think through is if both houses decant, what the consequences are for how Parliament does its job, not least the relationship between the two houses, because how it's physically configured has significant consequences for relationships, including with government. And the point about if we decant, where do we go to? I mean, local. There are these suggestions, oh, we should move elsewhere, um, including the Lords moving to York. Um, well, I'm sorry, that would strengthen government if you'd separate the two houses in that way. Um, I'm not against the Lords moving, I'm against the House of Lords alone moving. If you move one chamber, you need to move the other. If you move two chambers, you need to move government. Perfectly principal case for having a you know, dedicated um, capital area somewhere. You can make a case for that, extraordinarily expensive. Um, but you need to think through the implications. But in the immediate uh, future, yes, this is urgent. We need to get on with it. But we need to think through the consequences for the government of the United Kingdom in terms of how Parliament then operates, because the physicality has consequences uh, for how each house operates and how the two houses actually relate to one another. So we've really got to think that through. But it is urgent and the urgency is apparent more becomes more apparent day by day 
Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I think with that, we'll turn to the audience questions, if that's all right with the others. Uh, so Lisa should hopefully appear shortly on our screens. Uh, and Lisa, would you like to give us the first round of questions? Yes, and thank you to everyone who submitted. Um, I'm going to do my best to get as many in as we can. Um, so our first question um, is from Arabella Lang. Um, who notes that Parliament has taken a few welcome steps to modernise. One was to publish Erskine May online, but that also exposed how arcane and impenetrable Parliament's internal rules are. How far does the panel think that simplifying standard orders and other procedural rules would improve public trust, understanding and engagement? Um, I should have said Arabella is with the Public Law Project. Um, and then a couple of uh, questions linked by a sort of broad theme of scrutiny. Uh, so from Frances D'Souza, uh, herself, of course, a member of the Lords. Uh, does the panel think that the government's recent use of a statutory instrument to change primary legislation has established an unfortunate precedent? And uh, that's referring, of course, to the uh, rules around protest. Um, and then um, a couple of questions from Keith Raffin and Michaela Best. Uh, Keith Raffin writes, as a former MP and MSP, I'm a strong supporter of select committees. Wouldn't pre-legislative scrutiny be improved by formalising their role um, by holding hearings and reporting on white papers or possibly green papers? Uh, Michaela, an advocate for citizens' assemblies, asks, can we see a sifting role for citizens' assemblies in scrutinising bills? So a couple of questions about you. Are there other institutions that should be more involved in legislative scrutiny? Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Lisa. So that was a question about whether the internal rules are too impenetrable, uh, one about using statutory instruments to amend primary legislation, and then, as you say, those last two about scrutiny. Um, so I'll invite the panellists to, to pick out whichever of those they would like to address, and they shouldn't feel any obligation to address uh, all of them. Um, perhaps we could slightly change the order, and I could come to uh, Bridget first this time. Right. Thanks. Um, thanks, Tom. Um, I think I think few few things I could just say quickly in terms of um, simplifying the language and procedures of Parliament. Yes, absolutely. Um, this is something that the Hansard Society thinks could usefully be done. Um, it's notable, for example, that in the Commons there is no equivalent of the Lord's Companion to the Standing Orders, which sets out much more in a much more user friendly way. Um, how the House of Lords works. There's no equivalent for the Commons. Um, there are a multitude of examples where um, parliamentary language really doesn't help um, the public, the watching public, understand what's going on. Um, my favourite example um, is always when um, uh, a bill is introduced and the chief whip stands up and the, the speaker says, second reading what day and the chief whip stands up and says tomorrow and everybody who's following the bill has a heart attack because they think second reading is tomorrow whereas in fact tomorrow does not mean tomorrow and and we we have to keep explaining this to people um so things very simple things like that could could be done um on the um select committees and and pre-legislative and post-legislative scrutiny um it there is there is it is slightly opaque about which which uh draft bills get sent to select committees and which ones get uh, sent to ded um, dedicated bill set up uh, committees set up for that purpose. So there's there's something that could be, I think, clarified there because it's, it's a bit opaque and it's and it's it seems to be pretty much up to the government. Um, the the absolutely select committees can play a, a very useful role and they should do more 
um, of this, but obviously the the issue, which is a wider issue with select committees in the Commons um, at the moment, is is their workload, and the the willingness of of members to serve and to uh, dedicate the amount of time that good select committee work takes. And I think there's a there's a bigger issue there about what MPs think they're in Parliament to do. Um, are they working in, on legislation and select committees at Westminster, or is their focus uh, in their constituencies? Um, on the public order SI um, and the possible precedent um, for using an SI to uh, change a, a previous decision of Parliament, um, we did an event on that um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So I and, and there's obviously now also a judicial review of the instrument. So I would refer people perhaps to look at those two uh, resources. Brilliant, thank you. Um, Alexander, are there any one or two of these that you'd like to pick up and say anything on? Yes, thank you. Um, I think I, I, I do too. First of all, the arcane procedures um, bit, and secondly, the, the SI. On, on the first point, I mean, I do agree with Arabella that the language um, is not always the most helpful, but I think there are actually three things that hinder public participation. Um, one, one may be the way in which the business is, is described, um, but the second is the fact that obviously for political reasons, uh, we rarely have much advance notice of the business for, for NGOs, for stakeholders, for people that want to be involved in the legislative process. The fact that things are, are, are effectively sprung on us and that there is no um, actual um, guide much in advance as to when things are going to happen is, is particularly unhelpful. I'd also say the website itself isn't particularly helpful. The business papers, and uh, you know, for both houses, and uh, are not clearly set out on the front page. If you want to use that type of thing, and I think members get used to using them, so they're, they're familiar with the way that they're laid out. But I don't think they're particularly helpful always um, for people who want to engage with Parliament either. So there's plenty that could be done uh, to make things a lot more accessible. Uh, and it's not just the language; it's also it's also the way in which it's set out. On the SI point, um, I'd merely say um, that, yes, I mean, this was this was a bad precedent, but we've had plenty of concern expressed, for example, by uh, Igor Judge, the former Lord Chief Justice, about the use of what are termed Henry VIII powers and statutory instruments that allow the government to um, pass bills with powers to make statutory instruments that can then amend the bills. And I think concerns have been being expressed about this sort of thing for a long time. And... Um, it is really important. I mean, statutory instruments may sound dull and the committees that scrutinise them may sound dull. But as we heard earlier, you know, this is where the bulk of the law in this country is made. And if we don't scrutinise them properly, we can't then come back and complain that we don't like what the law is. Great. Uh, Sangam. Um, uh, I use Erskine May and uh, a lot, and I have the copy of the standing orders with me at more or less all times. Standing orders are a lot easier to read than Erskine May. Erskine May, and it, it's a great document, um, but if you don't know what you're looking for, it's really hard to find it. And I know that might sound ridiculous, but you've really got to have an understanding of how to find the thing that you might that might help you find the thing. And I think so. I think that could definitely be easier to use, um, even if e before we even get to should we actually simplify the rules. Um, the C the uh, SI is used to reform primary legislation. I think it does set a, a, an unfortunate precedent um, because, as we've already said, the scrutiny is very different. Um, Pre-legislation formalised, pre and post. I think there will be some bills that just don't benefit from pre-leg. 
Um, but we've seen a lot of really good use of pre-ledge. I think there's also something to consider, which is whether or not it should be select committees that do the pre-ledge and then go on to form the bulk of a bill committee. That is a heavy workload because certain subject areas will have a lot to do and others will have no, little or no legislation. But with some scope for flexibility, I think that there's a good case to be made for doing more of that. Certainly, I talked to a colleague recently who was on the select committee and therefore had done the pre-ledge of the bill committee she's now on. And she said it was absolutely made her better at doing her job. So more of that, please. Um, citizens' assemblies as a sifting role. I, I think I'm, I'm more interested in citizens' assemblies as a consultative and advisory role. I think sifting would be difficult to do because there's technical reasons why certain things might need to happen that can sound very dull and uninspiring. Um, but but actually, I, I personally think we sort of we've got we've got a a good you know the joint committee on statutory instruments does an excellent job in my view, but I, I've been looking really carefully about how that might be improved or strengthened by the proposals from the Hansard Society. I think there is a role for citizens' assemblies, um, but I think it's, it's it can't be instead of the democratically elected first chamber, and it's probably not going to be cut out to do very technical work on sifting, but could do really excellent work on, on content. Brilliant, thank you. And I'll just use that as an opportunity to plug that the Constitution Unit has been doing some work recently with citizens' assemblies. So if people are interested, they should uh, have a look at uh, some of the recent publications on our website. Uh, Philip, is there anything you would like to add to this round of questions? Yes, I was going to make exactly the point that Alex Horn made about the website. I think that's absolutely crucial because we tend to focus on think people are suddenly tuning in, they're watching debates, they're not necessarily. The website is absolutely, I think, crucial in terms of public accessibility. And at the moment, it's not well designed for that purpose. It's sort of constructed from a parliamentary point of view in terms of process bills committees and so on not from the perspective of the citizen and we're more concerned with issues what what affects them so we really need to rethink that but my main point was going to be on the point about pre-legis group now i'll comment on post-legis as well i mentioned the constitution committee report that we uh uh published nearly 20 years ago on parliament's legislative process and we argued that pre-legislative scrutiny should be the norm and not the exception, and that ministers should have to justify if a bill wasn't going to be subject to pre-legislative uh, scrutiny, because too often ministers rush in, they want their big bill on, and they're not going to allow it to be subject to pre-legislative scrutiny. So we need to change uh, that. I think pre-legislative scrutiny, as Thangham touched upon, when it occurs, it generally helps to improve the quality of legislation, because of course the government's views aren't necessarily fixed by that point, the bill has not been introduced and the government aren't necessarily committed. So we were very much in favour of that uh, becoming the norm. Most bills lend themselves to it. At the time, the government, the minister did say yes, they agreed with that view, but then they rode back on that, and we've, we don't see that many bills subject to pre-led scrutiny. We really need to be pressing for that because it will improve the quality. And coming back to my earlier point about looking at legislative process holistically, post-legislative scrutiny. Because historically, for ministers, success has been getting the act on the statute book. That's success. No, success is whether an act actually achieves the purpose for which it was designed. So we need to be checking it. Has it achieved, fulfilled its purpose post-led and if not should there be some adjustment so the lords has done some good work in this area adoption legislation mental health legislation and so on but that needs to be more extensive and at the moment we need to be put pressure on government which did accept that it should engage in post-legislative review departments three to five years after an acts come into force should review whether it's achieved its purpose um, but that's now more or less dried up in terms of publishing the reports 
of that scrutiny. So we need to get back to that to make sure at least there is post-legislative scrutiny by departments. But I would like to see um, post-legislative scrutiny by parliament itself, a joint committee on post-legislative scrutiny, and more done by committees to examine uh, acts to ensure that they've actually achieved what parliament intended them to achieve. Okay, great. So we have about 10 minutes left. Hopefully we can squeeze in uh, maybe one more round of questions. Uh, so Lisa, have you got a few for us? I do indeed. There has been great interest uh, in the Q&A in the potential for an elected second chamber. Um, so we're going to have a round of questions about the role of the House of Lords and its potential future. Um, so in particular, there have been a couple of questions um, directed at Thangham about Labour's plans um, and um, it, what Labour might want to do when. Um, but to uh, pose also some more general questions, um, Charlie Heintoff asks, uh, if the Lords becomes elected, will its effectiveness in improving legislation be likely to be increased or diminished? Um, a similar question from Andrew Woodcock. Uh, one of the concerns often raised in relation to an elected upper house is that elected members are likely to regard themselves as having equivalent democratic legitimacy to members of the Commons and may be more assertive in insisting on changes. This threatens to create regular gridlock as seen in Washington. Can this be avoided? Um, and finally, Wayne Ramwell posed a similar question also citing gridlock in the US, but uh, concluded by asking, when it comes to constitutional reform, is it not better to adopt incrementalism, um, perhaps thinking of some of the, the sorts of things uh, proposed by Philip Norton, rather than radical systemic change? Brilliant. Thanks, Lisa. So I think what I'd like to do then is to maybe invite Pangham first to respond to some of the more direct questions about Labour's plans, uh, and then we can go around uh, to Philip, Bridget and Alexander in that order to answer sort of one bit of that if they have any that they'd like to pick up. Really happy to clear up um, some confusion and also some misinformation that's been put into the press recently. Um, I have checked with him personally. Keir has not said, nor is he discussing any sort of packing of the House of Lords. That would be completely contrary to what he's already committed to, which is replacing the House of Lords in our first term in government with a democratic uh, a form of elections, uh, which We've got various ideas about how that might go. We'll do some public consultation on it, but he is absolutely committed to reform in our first term, and that includes abolishing the House of Lords. Primacy, we would continue with primacy for the House of Commons. Uh, we think that's really important so that we don't get that gridlock, but there'd have to be some sort of way that the House of Lords could trigger something for constitutional matters in case the Commons ever becomes the, the you know, we, we, we don't want to see a situation where the Commons is trying to do something profoundly anti-democratic and the laws doesn't have any way of dealing with it. The Commons will have to retain primacy. And I think that some of that democratic legitimacy that will accrue, and I take Lord Norton's point earlier that it, we're talking about input rather than output, I think the democratic legitimacy is important. I think, I hope that we would still end up with a skilled body of people to do the incredible work that my colleagues in the Lords do on, on all sides. I think, you know, the work that the Lords do on scrutiny and holding the executive to account is incredible. It's detailed, it's thoughtful and it's thorough. And an incoming Labour government will want to be able to preserve the ability to have those outputs. But we do think a de democratic legitimacy means that we have to abolish the current structure and replace it within the first term. Yeah, great. Uh, then we'll come next to Philip Norton then, who you might uh, you have some reflections on that or on these questions about incrementalism. 
Yes, well, I, mean, I agree with those questions who agree with me. Um, uh, two points I'd make. One's absolutely fundamental because people start arguing for reform on the ground that the House of Lords is undemocratic as if that's self-evidently true. It's not. There is a democratic argument for having an appointed second chamber. So um, one has to look at it from that perspective. That's quite clear in debate and the literature now. You can make a democratic argument for an appointed second chamber. So that's the value of having the House of Lords. It complements the first chamber, which is the elected body and through which government is chosen and is answerable to the electors. If you start electing a second chamber, which could use the existing powers of the existing House of Lords, never mind demand more on the grounds we're elected, we want more powers, because of course the rationale for the Parliament Act disappears once you have an elected second chamber. But just using the existing powers could cause significant problems. And if you were to try to achieve, retain the primacy of the House of Commons, what's the point of seeking election to the House of Lords anyway? But there's a principled uh, point that um, the present arrangements are value adding. The House of Lords adds value. If you have an elected second chamber, it will be value detracting because it would actually undermine the accountability of government to electors for the policy that they produce because the second chamber could then challenge it, producing outcomes for which there is no one body answerable to the electors for what's being decided. So you might empower electors at the individual level of choosing representative, but not at the aggregate level of choosing a government that is directly accountable to the people for public policy. So that's a, a, a key point, I, I, I think there. It, as I say, I think it would be value detracting because you'd lose the value that you've got at the moment because the House of Lords is qualitatively distinctive because of its membership, how they're composed and recognizing we're not there to challenge the commons. If you have an elected body, well, th that's going to be different in terms of who's standing. You'd squeeze out the independents, the crossbenchers who had considerably to the work of the House of Lords, the parties would come in. Um, and so you'd end up with a second chamber that's either superfluous because the government's got a majority uh, or mischievous because it doesn't. So uh, what's the value uh, derived there in ensuring good law? So as I say, you can challenge it fundamentally once you strip away that argument, oh, it's democratic to have an elected second chamber. No, it's not. Then you start to recognize the benefits of the existing arrangements uh, of asymmetrical bicameralism. Wonderful. Good. I think we've managed to find a round of questions where people don't have to begin uh, their answers with, I agree with what everyone else has said. Um, uh, but uh, Bridget, perhaps I'll come to you briefly and then Alexander. Thanks, Tom. I don't have anything to add to, to what's been said. And uh, just to reiterate uh, Lord Norton's points about, you know, you need to know what you want the Lords to do before you can sensibly discuss who you want in there. And similarly, you need to discuss what you want the Commons to do before you can sensibly discuss the Lords. Great, thank you. And then Alexander. Well, I do broadly agree with much of what Philip has just told us. I am certainly in favour of incrementalism here. I do not support the idea that one suddenly sweeps away the edifice of the House of Lords as though it, it, it's a bad thing. I think actually um, the House of Lords gives an awful lot of added value. Having worked in both houses, um, I would very much regret the loss of many of the peers that, that Philip has highlighted, the crossbenchers, the sort of more apolitical people. It's hard to imagine uh, a process in which you elected 
um, peers or, or their replacements where the party machines wouldn't taken over. But one of the clear advantages in the House of Lords is that you can bring in experts. Quite often when I would sit in a Lords Select Committee giving them advice, it was impossible to tell which political party the member was from. And it made producing uh, reports that were technical, that were uh, non-partisan, that didn't bring in sort of extraneous factors, much more straightforward. And also, to be frank, when I was engaged in conversation with those people, they brought in real expertise. We would have former foreign secretaries, former judges, you know, people bringing stuff from outside parliament. And I think that's more and more relevant as we have more and more professional politicians and much younger people going into the House of Commons. Having a second chamber with people who are bringing real world experience from having done these jobs and seeing what the effects of the legislation might be in practice is quite important. And I'm not really hearing what this added injection of democracy in the second chamber is, is, is going to add uh, over and above that, that we should sort of seek to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So I'm very much with, with Philip, maybe some incremental change, maybe the removal of some hereditaries if you want to, uh, maybe the removal of some bishops if you want to, and maybe a cap on numbers so that there's a one in one out system and we don't see the sort of things we did with the um, potential sort of Boris Johnson list of new political peers, um, but not the uh, erosion of expertise. Hey, thank you. This is clearly a conversation that could uh, carry on all day, but unfortunately, we're just about out of time. Uh, before I ask you all to join me in thanking the speakers, I've just got a few bits of housekeeping to run through. As I mentioned earlier, the recording of this session will appear on our YouTube channel and our podcast feed imminently. So please do subscribe to those or look out for information on our website or Twitter. If you're not already signed up to our events mailing list, please do so in order to be the first to hear about our forthcoming events. You can find the Get Involved link on the Constitution Unit's website. Uh, nearer to now, the next session of this conference starts in an hour's time at 12.30. The topic is devolution and the union, and speakers include the former leader of the Scottish Labour Party, Kezia Dugdale. So I hope you'll be able to join us for that. This Zoom call will end shortly, but you'll be able to join again before that panel using the same link as before, just before that session is due to begin. Uh, but with that, let me thank all of you for attending today, and let me, on your behalf, thank all of our brilliant speakers, uh, Thangam Debonair, Philip Norton, Bridget Fowler, Alexander Horn, and particularly to thank them for giving us their time today so generously. I'll also thank Lisa for fielding questions and for the team behind the scenes for making everything run so smoothly. But goodbye for now, and we look forward to seeing you again soon, and hopefully later in the conference. Bye-bye.